And uh, we turn this evening to Romans chapter 9. We're in a study of the book of Romans, not uh, going through every chapter and verse, not even necessarily consecutively, though we come to the next section here, uh, moving on from chapter 8. We are concentrating on those portions of Scripture here in Romans where tremendous light was once again brought to bear upon the Word as people began not only to uh, translate and to teach, uh, but uh, um, and to debate and to discuss. And so these things, uh, again, came into sharp refinement. And some of the fruits of these labors are too easily left behind. We're bringing out some of these gems of the Reformation And uh, here we are from Romans chapter 9. We'll break in with verse 10, a new paragraph, but still very much considering uh, this this matter of those whom God had, we read earlier, of uh, those who were called according to God's purpose, those whom he foreknew and were predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Well, Breaking in here in verse, chapter 9, verse 10, we read, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not being born yet, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy upon whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed Say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Doesn't the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy? which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Amen. Let us pray together. With the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God, how unsearchable, O Lord, are your judgments and your ways past finding out. We thank you that we have been for your, uh, the sake of your great glory and name, the recipients of compassion and mercy. And we pray that as it has been your will to have compassion on us, so even now in our need, in our uh, uh, 
time of study of your word, we pray that you would bless each according to his need, that we might be able to understand some of these divine mysteries. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, what was the Reformation all about? So many students of the Reformation focus on matters like the papacy, the indulgences, the mass, and so forth. Usually neglecting what Luther said was right at the heart, right at the center of the conflict he had with Rome. Well, the great humanist scholar I introduced you to, uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam, was like Luther, a man who wanted to see reform in the church, but unlike Luther, a man who was still very thoroughly a supporter of the Pope and very Roman Catholic. He was under pressure to write against Luther because he was regarded as the greatest scholar of his day, and for good reason. Though reluctant to do so, Erasmus wrote in 1524 uh, a book that challenged the teaching of Luther called The Diatribe on the Freedom of the Will. The next year, Luther published his book-length response called On the Bondage of the Will, saying at the beginning, You alone, Erasmus, have attacked the real thing, that is, the, the essential issue. You have not wearied me with those extraneous issues about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and the like trifles, rather than issues, in respect of which almost all to date have sought my blood. You, and you alone, have seen the hinge on which all turns, and aimed for the vital spot. For that I heartily thank you, for it is more gratifying to me to deal with this issue. I introduced to you before that work on the bondage of the will. We're going to go a little further into that to see how it sheds some light on the matter before us. So Luther uh, has to uh, uh, reply to Erasmus, and he says, I do it with pleasure. Because, really, who cares about papacy and indulgences and transubstantiation? The whole issue is, is salvation of the Lord, or is it not? Now, when people think about the Protestant reformers, there's one name that is typically attached to the doctrines of predestination and election, and that name is John Calvin. But, as uh, R.C. Sproul put it in one of his lectures, Calvin was, if anything, Luther's junior partner in the teaching. It was Luther who wrote the most. He was the original champion, and in that contest, unlike Calvin, he wrote a full-length book on the matter, which he said later was the only book of his that he thought was worthy to be handed down to posterity. That and the catechism was all that he felt should be included in his works. And in his treatment of predestination, we do not find abstract theology. Oh, no, we find Luther's pastoral heart on display his emphasis is, this is a God that you can trust. A God who not only saves, but keeps people like you and me who are weak and sinful. There is no place so dark in the human soul that is too dark for God. And so Luther underscores God's great love for his people in freely and fully rescuing them from death, darkness, and despair. So I'd like to give you some of that debate tonight and I hope that through these things you'll learn more. You'll hear some of Luther's, more of Luther's own words than I've given in some previous sermons. You'll understand how this man came about. 
uh, to, uh, to defend these doctrines so ably, and I hope that you'll, more than that, understand more about this difficult doctrine we find in Romans chapter 9. It's my goal for this evening, not just to introduce you, of course, to Luther, but to Luther's great God. But let me set the stage for this debate that was going on. Luther had strongly underscored that salvation was of the Lord from beginning to end. He wrote, for instance, quote, all things whatever arise from and depend on the divine appointment whereby it was foreordained who should receive the word of life and who should disbelieve it, who should be delivered from their sins and who should be hardened in them and who should be justified and who should be condemned. So you see the wisdom of Erasmus here. He looks at, he looks at this statement and he says, well, surely this is in so many ways the matter on which everything turns. If I can show Luther that salvation is not of the Lord, if I can deliver people from this misunderstanding of Luther's, then the rest of the debate will be mine. Erasmus, fully realizing the implications of Luther's strong statement, attacked at this point. For example, he said, if, if, if this teaching of God's sovereignty is proclaimed, well, practical man that he was, Erasmus says, well, who, in tr- who will try to reform his life? In other words, if God saves you, why would you bother to do anything? Who will try to reform his life? Luther replies, nobody, nobody can. God has no time for your practitioners of self-reformation, for they are hypocrites. But he says, the elect who fear God will be reformed by the Holy Spirit. The rest will perish unreformed. it's, It's a clever way of arguing, but you see his point. The same Holy Spirit who we saw earlier in the study gave us new birth, opens our hearts to the love of God, is the same one who then leads us to grow in godliness. The one who makes us desire Christ at the beginning makes us follow Christ. So this false idea, well, if God loves you, why would you do anything? Sorry, if God saves you, why do you have to do anything? That must understand what salvation is in the first place. Remember what we read at the beginning of Romans 8 two weeks ago. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Erasmus, if you, if you say, well, why, why will we do anything? You misunderstand. Nobody would do anything. That's the whole point. But the same Spirit who brings us to Jesus brings us to follow Jesus. That's what salvation means. Oh, Erasmus had plenty of other, other objections, though. He's just getting started. He said, if you believe in election, how could you then have any assurance of salvation? You say the elect are saved, Erasmus asked. Well, who will believe that God loves him? Luther stands his ground. I reply, nobody, nobody can. But the elect shall believe it, and the rest shall perish without believing it, raging and blaspheming as you describe them. So there will be some who believe it, end quote, Luther. Uh, again, uh, this by way of just, uh, not, just um, not just some, some uh, savory 
salty words by Luther, but by way of review. Remember back at the beginning of Romans chapter 5, that therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and so forth, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. What? Erasmus, again, you don't understand what salvation means and entails. The same God who justifies us by faith, faith and gives us peace through our Lord Jesus Christ pours out in our hearts the love of God by the Holy Spirit. So, so Luther, uh, Luther uh, stands his ground and uh, he has lots of these clever, uh, you say this, I reply, nobody, except by the grace of God, which he gives all of his elect. Okay, so, all right. But now, coming to the point, the central point that Erasmus makes in that diatribe is that God's sovereignty, no matter how we understand it, and he argues on both sides for a while, but he says no matter how we understand it, should not be emphasized to the point that it overcomes the freedom of man's will. Luther fires back with a book full of many verses, and this observation here, God has surely promised grace to the one who is humbled, that is, those who mourn over and despair of themselves, wretched man that I am. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will counsel, pleasure, and work of another, God alone. And Luther is keen to explain some points at some length. I'd like to bring you, uh, this was going to be more, but uh, just the more I was reading Luther, the more I thought, oh, this is just classic. I got to give this to you. So uh, I'm going to quote a little bit more of Luther, have just a little bit less material here, but I'd like to give you uh, two, two key points, and then make some, make some application for you here um, of my own. But the, the, the first point here that I'd like to bring you from this debate that will throw light on this chapter is that God is not unjust in choosing to give some mercy and some justice. God is not uh, f- uh, uh, the author of men's sins. Men are the author of their own sins. But the fact that he has chosen to give some mercy and some justice does not mean that God is unjust. Okay. So this, we, to, to, to see how this d- debate works, uh, we pick up here again in verse 11 about these children, Jacob and Esau, not yet being born, haven't done anything good or evil that the purpose of God according to election or his choice might stand not of works, but of him, of God, who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Erasmus had argued that it is unjust for God to choose some men to be saved, but not all. 
quote here. This is actually Luther paraphrasing Erasmus. Reason will insist that these are not the acts of a good and merciful God. But Erasmus, Luther says, you are deceived by mistress reason. You are rationalizing away what is plainly before us. None deserve God's mercy and compassion. Not one. God may extend mercy to whom he pleases. If he has chosen to leave some in condemnation for the demonstration of his justice, and all the more, as we read later here, which will highlight the grace to those of us who have deserved the same, Luther constantly points out that God damns the undeserving just as he elects the undeserving. All are undeserving. But there is no injustice. If God condemns the guilty, Luther writes, you may be worried that it's hard to defend the mercy and justice of God in damning the undeserving, that is, ungodly persons, who, being born in ungodliness, can by no means avoid being ungodly, and staying so and being damned, but are compelled by natural necessity to sin and perish. As Paul says, we were all, by nature, children of wrath, even as the others, created by such a God himself from a seed that had been corrupted by the sin of one man, Adam. But here, said Luther, God must be reverenced and held in awe as being both, both merciful to those whom he justifies and saves in their own utter unworthiness, so that we must show some measure of deference to his divine wisdom by believing him just when, we, just when, just when to us he seems unjust. Does it seem unjust? Why some and not others? Well, first of all, none deserve mercy. And second, we must bow to divine wisdom when he seems not to treat all the same. Erasmus complains that this makes God capricious. Why would God choose to harden some in their sins and not renew their evil will if he could? Luther gives the biblical reply. This question touches on the secrets of his majesty, where, Romans 11.33, his judgments are past finding out. And it is not for us to inquire into those mysteries, but to adore them. Why, why adore? Well, Luther says, when God saves the undeserving, without merit, yes, and justifies the ungodly, with all their great demerit. When God does that, Luther says, man's heart doesn't accuse God of iniquity. Nobody says, oh God, that's so unfair that you save the ungodly. Nor do we demand to know why he would will to do so. Although, he says, by its own reckoning, such action is most unprincipled. Does that not seem unfair, in other words, Erasmus? Does not your reason offend at this? But, writes Luther, because God does what he does in our interest, and we welcome it, 
well, we consider it just and good. But when God damns the undeserving, <laughs> because it's against our interest, man's heart finds the actions iniquitous and intolerable. And here, man's heart protests and grumbles and blasphemes. You know, when, when God saves totally unworthy people, nobody says, that's not fair. But when God gives justice to people that deserve justice, man's heart says, that's not fair. What? See the problem. Or to use the words of the, of the passage, it's no wonder that God hated Jacob. The wonder of wonders is that God loved Esau. Is that not astonishing? Is that not a case, Luther says, for adoration? That, that God should set his love on wretched people. It is no scandal to justice that he damns the, un, that he damns the undeserving, those who deserve damnation. He writes, If God who crowns the undeserving pleases you, you ought not to be displeased when he damns the undeserving. He, if he is just in the one case, he cannot be just in the other. Okay, so, you see, see his debate. And, and, and Luther here uh, puts, his, puts his finger uh, on, the, on the real problem of the passage. The, the real problem is not that why wouldn't he save more or all. It's why would he save any? That is the scandal against reason. Why would he give mercy to the undeserving? Well, Luther, uh, re resetting, resetting the boundaries of our mind, then goes to explain this matter of the will of God that's so prominent in our passage. And my second point to you explains how the Bible speaks about God's will in two different ways. The Bible speaks about God's will in two different ways. And uh, we'll pick up again in verse 15. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion so that it's not of him who wills, of a man who wills, or of a man who runs, but of God who shows mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy upon whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. And you'll say to me, why does he find fault? For who's resisted his will? Okay, so Erasmus has this predictable objection. Luther, we know that God wills the salvation of all men. And... Uh, we don't have all the details of that, but you can think, for example, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4, where Paul says that we should pray for kings and all those in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life that's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wills all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Philae, the will. Similarly, 2 Peter 3, the apostle says that the delay of the second coming of Christ is for this important reason. The Lord is not slow in coming, uh, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And finally, in Ezekiel 8, 23, uh, 18, 23 and 32, the Lord gives his own heart 
about those who are perishing. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. So Erasmus and others conclude, if God clearly does not will any sinner to perish, we cannot read this passage to say that he wills some to perish. You understand all that? Some of the kids will go back home tonight and the parents will be like, what did you learn tonight? Uh, okay, high mysteries, okay? Luther explained the Bible describes the will of God in two ways. He calls one his inscrutable will. Inscrutable will. Uh, elsewhere, other theologians, uh, Jonathan Edwards, will of decree. Luther also calls it his sovereign majesty, where he does according to uh, his own counsel. And there's also what Luther calls his word or his revealed moral will. Um, yeah, you say it's pretty high philosophy. Use the illustration before. Uh, let's see, you lent me a pen earlier. Uh, Ralph lent me a, a pen earlier. Um, is it God's will that... Well, let's start, we'll start with an easier question. Is it God's will that people should lie? Well, you say, no, certainly not. We just read the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. And it is impossible for God to lie. It's contrary to his character. It is not, God is not willing that people should lie. I, I, I then ask, whence lies? Can he not prevent them? God has chosen, you see, to allow men in his world for a time to lie. Does God want us to murder? Well, no, he, he, he says, thou shalt not kill. And, and yet, um, and, and yet, there are murders. Whence murders? Because God has chosen to allow, to even uh, overrule at times what men mean for evil in order to bring about good, supremely, of course, in the death of Christ. But we can mention other things. God is allowing evil to happen in order that great good may result so that there is a sufficient moral justification and that God is uh, not getting man off the hook at all. And uh, so God, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, as our passage reminds us. Whom he wills, he hardens. Why has he done this? Well, for this very purpose that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth for the glory of God. Pharaoh is a wicked man. And if he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that the people are not able to go, and if Pharaoh, wicked man that he is, hardens his heart so that people will not go, there, there's, no problem, there's no problem there. But that case, by the way, is clearly not unique. I mean, for example, just a, a few pages on, we read how Sihon, king of Heshbon, wouldn't let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, in order that he might give him into your hand, as it is this day. God wanted to destroy the wicked king Sihon, so he hardened his heart. In other words, it was God's will, in one sense, that Sihon act in a way that was 
in another sense, contrary to God's will, to resist God's people when they made a very nice appeal to just pass through their borders. Well, we read in Revelation about those kings who are given authority to wage war against the Lamb. By the way, waging war against the Lamb is a sin. It is contrary to the revealed moral will of God. But the angel says God gave their, the ten kings, hearts. God gave into their hearts to do his will and to perform one will and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Once again, God willing in one sense to influence the hearts of these kings in one direction, to make war against the Lamb, so that his greater purposes, uh, in another sense, could be fulfilled, even though that would be a sin. The sin is not proceeding from God, it's proceeding from these wicked men. I'll come back to this in a moment here, but Luther strongly affirms God's desire for men to be saved in the moral sense, pointing to the tears of Christ over the perishing in Jerusalem. It's not that God doesn't care about these people. Uh, Here is God revealed in Jesus, Luther writes. Here, God incarnate says, I would and thou wouldest not. How often I've longed to gather your, my, your children together under your wings as a, as a hen, but you were not willing, says Jesus. God incarnate, I repeat, was sent for this purpose, to will, say, do, suffer, and offer to all men all that is necessary for salvation. But he offends many who, being abandoned or hardened by God's secret will of majesty, do not receive him thus, willing, speaking, doing, and offering. It belongs to the same God incarnate, to weep, lament, and groan over the perdition of the ungodly, though that will of majesty purposefully leaves and reprobates some to perish. Nor is it for us to ask why he does so, but to stand in awe of God who can do and who wills to do such things. You get this? Is it a struggle? Let me give you an analogy that might help. This, now not from Luther, but much more recently from Robert Dabney, who says, this is a very imperfect analogy, but I'd like to give it to you from the, from the life of George Washington. There was a certain major general, Andre, uh, certain, sorry, a certain major named Andre, who had jeopardized the safety of the young nation through some rash and unfortunate, in quotes, treasonous acts. He also, by all accounts, just such a nice guy that uh, everyone loved him, and when the death warrant was signed and had to be signed, um, Marshall writes in his Life of Washington, perhaps on no occasion of his life did the commander-in-chief obey with more reluctance of stern mandates of duty and of policy. Washington's compassion for Andre was real and profound, And he had, quote, plenary power to kill or to save alive. Washington could could have saved the man if he wanted to. He had the full authority to pardon the man. Washington's volition to sign the death warrant of Andre did not arise from the fact that his compassion was slight or feigned. 
but from the fact that it was rationally counterpoised by a complex of superior judgments, of wisdom, duty, patriotism, and moral indignation. There were higher principles at stake. It's not that he didn't care. Dabney even imagines a defender of Andre hearing Washington say this, I do this with the deepest reluctance and pity. And the defender says, well, since you're supreme in this matter and you have full bodily ability to throw down the pen, we shall know by your signing this warrant that your pity is hypocritical. The petulance of this charge would have been equal to its folly. The pity was real, but it was restrained by superior elements of motive. Washington had official and bodily power to discharge the criminal, but he had not the sanctions of his own wisdom and justice. And so, Dabney says, the corresponding point in divine election is that the absence of will in God to save does not necessarily imply the absence of compassion. God has a true compassion, which is yet restrained in the case of the non-elect by consistent and holy reason from taking the form of a will to regenerate. God's infinite wisdom regulates his whole will and guides and harmonizes all of its principles. Okay. I hope that helps a little bit. Very imperfect, but Luther writes, at present, we must keep in view God's word and leave alone his inscrutable will, for it is by his word and not by his inscrutable will that we must be guided. We, we know the heart of God. That's how we proceed. We don't understand all the reasons why God chooses to have mercy to one and not to another, to give over some uh, to the sin that they desire. As we read in Romans 1, he gives them over, he gives them over, he gives them over. To others, he gives Christ. He gives new hearts. He gives his Holy Spirit. Why one and not the other? Luther writes, we have to do what we know according to God's word and the light he's given to us. That which God decreed will come to pass without our doing. Why should we, in trying to find out what's predestined, become like the Epicureans or Turks, insolent, stupid fools, or despairing, wretched people? The devil is in the saddle, making such people think that they are clever and wise when they argue thus. All right, I'd like to spend a, a few minutes here just going over these, these, this distinction that uh, Luther made and uh, frankly, Jonathan Edwards made even better and uh, try to conclude with some practical application of this teaching. L Luther says God has a moral will, a desire that people should do good and be saved, that, that people should obey, actively obey his command. Come to me and be saved, all you winds of the earth. The Bible speaks about God's will is um, found at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, for instance, everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What does it mean to do the will of my Father in heaven? It means, of course, that people obey his moral will. 
And those who do not do the will of God are those who practice lawlessness, who don't obey God's commands. Because the word will has two different meanings. Some people call this the moral sense. Or 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is God's will. Paul writes, this is the will of God, your sanctification. John writes, the world is passing away in the lust thereof, but he who does the will of God abides forever. In passage after passage, God's will is his moral desire for men. Um, he who, only he who does the will of my Father in heaven shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who practice lawlessness, he will say, depart from you, I, depart from me, I never knew you. This is called the will of God. But there's another way that the Bible speaks about the will. It's not his moral desire, but rather sometimes called the will of decree, the passive obedience to his decrees. Again, Luther calls it his inscrutable will or his majesty. Where we read Ephesians 1, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things that happen. Solomon, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's will. This is the will of God's Sovereign decree by which he governs, restrains, rules over, bounds, and even sometimes guides the actions of sinful men so that even in their rebellion, they must only do what will fulfill God's greater glory, good, and purposes. For Acts 4, for instance, truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, these were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. So, our Lord Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted, it's true, Isaiah 53. But those sinful men were but instruments in the sovereign hand of God so that they could only fulfill his great purposes by the same action that they meant for evil, God meant for good. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken with lawless hands. The sin is completely of the creature. The goodness is completely of the creator. And it's the same act. And this is a great mystery. But this is God's will of decree that all things come to pass according to the will of our Father in heaven. So when we pray, thy will be done, what are we praying? Well, we are praying that we would submit to God's sovereign decrees. If this possible for this cup to pass, Jesus says, let it pass, but not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. To submit to this, we must acknowledge that God's hand is in everything that happens. As Job acknowledged, uh, Sabaeans raided, Chaldeans uh, took away his goods and family. Satan was behind it all. 
But God says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says he didn't sin. He saw God even in his afflictions because these were under the government of God, without which men cannot live or move or have their being. We cannot even move apart from his will. We must secondly acknowledge God's goodness in everything that happens. We are prone to have hard thoughts of God, like Israel did. Why did you bring us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? God intends to destroy us. This is the rebellious heart that can only see the evil in the act, which may very well be evil. But there is another side that we are given to see, that God uh, is able to use all th- work all things together for good to those who love him. Or Genesis 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive. God is by no means the author of evil, but he will so limit and govern and overrule the actions of evil men that even when the evil befalls us, God will work these things for the good. So when Pharaoh commanded that the army of Egypt pursue Israel to death in the Red Sea, that that evil act was intended by God for great good and glory, that Israel's destroyers should destroy themselves. God is able to take our sufferings away, and we should ask him to do so. Paul pleads for him to be be released of the thorn in the flesh. Jesus says, Father, if it's possible, let let this cup pass from me. But... We acknowledge God's hands and God's goodness for God's good purposes are being fulfilled even by the works of the evil one. Third, we must commit ourselves to the Lord cheerfully. He is going to allow evil to have its day. The wrath of man shall praise him and the remainder of wrath he shall restrain. In the meantime, evil will have its day, but God will lead us to the valley of the shadow of death, so that we shall fear no evil. And the skill of a sea captain is most revealed in a storm. And so a Christian's grace is most tested and revealed and proved in our storms of affliction as we look to our captain, who will by no means allow us to perish, nor even from a hair to fall from our head, apart from the will of our Father in heaven. So these are difficult things to hold together, but I hope that you can see how this passage is being used. It is not man's will that is our hope. It is not of him who wills or of him who runs. It is of God who has mercy. Who has resisted his will? Well, Luther declares in conclusion, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened Uh, me by his gifts, sanctified and preserved me in the true faith, in like manner as he gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole church on earth and preserves it in union with Jesus Christ in the true faith, in which Christian church he daily forgives abundantly all my sins and the sins of all believers and will raise me up and all the dead on the last day and will grant everlasting life to me and to all who believe in Christ. This is most certainly true. The depths of God's mercy and why it is falling upon one and falling upon another 
we do not know. But this we know, the Lord has loved me and given himself for me, not for me only, but for the whole church. And this we can pause and adore the Lord and we can say, oh, Father, we pray that you would be glorified in it. Let's pray together then. Our Father, we do come to the end of this difficult passage this evening knowing that your purposes are fulfilled. The purpose that you had for Pharaoh and much better, the purpose you had according to election that we might be loved. We do not find fault even as we cannot resist your will, but we bow once again to the divine mercy and pray that you would make these things to be a matter of not mere controversy, but more importantly, praise and thanksgiving and that we come to you again and say, why us, O Lord? It is to your name we give all glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for letting me give you a little more Luther. Some more of those quotes. I hope that uh, interests you to read The Bondage of the Will.